or you can choose to stick around and join with us. We're going to be taking a look this morning uh, in the Gospel of John, this ancient account of the person of Jesus Christ. And there's uh, these stories that are so, so familiar to us that they seem so safe. And yet I got to tell you before I read it to you that, that the outcome, the end of, of the folks who were there experiencing these stories, the end of the people once they hear what Jesus has to say about himself is that many of them left and they walked away from Jesus. They would walk with Jesus no longer. So as we come to this text this morning I pray that God uses it to, to bring and, and awaken us from a numbness to what it claims, to who he claims to be. Because in them we have the power to experience who Jesus is and the life he has for us. So if you would join me in John chapter 6, be starting here in verse 1. And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, was at hand. and lifting up his eyes in, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to as many as were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the bar five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I pray that as we come to your text, Lord, as we come to these words that you have written and preserved for our good, Lord, that by your spirit you would awaken us to who you are. God, that you would awaken us from the numbness, awaken us from coldness, Lord, that we could see 
just what it is that you offer to our world, what it is that you offer in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this week, Google apparently knew what I was preaching on, and so it brought to me this, this headline a few days ago that uh, a pair of, quote, Jesus shoes that allow the wearer to walk on water just sold for $1,450. Apparently, a, a shoe company... Uh, making light of some of the ridiculous crossovers that happen in the the, the uh, industry, said, we're going to do a crossover with Jesus. And what would Jesus do if he made shoes? He would make them so that you could walk on water. So they took a pair of, of Nike Air Max 97s. They injected some holy water into the, the reservoir below the shoe and uh, sold them online with a nice little crucifix, golden crucifix tied around the laces for $1,400. Right? It proves the point of the familiarity, right? The, the, the popular demand. They didn't need to explain to the public what they were alluding to. They didn't need to tell us what they meant because we know it. Those of you who grew up in church, you uh, likely could tell me this story with astonishing precision with a flannel graph board, right? Moving uh, the, the little Jesus as he hopped across the water, right? If you didn't grow up in church, even still, you probably could tell me more or less the contours of this story. If I said, what are two th miracles that Christians claim Jesus did? You could probably have named these in, in the top ones off your head. Perhaps they're the kind of thing, precisely the kind of thing that makes you think that this story about Jesus were just another version of a fairy tale all along. But before we fall asleep or before we laugh it off, right, before we, we discount these stories and, and relegate it to the numbness of our hearts, I want you to understand that these stories. The implications of these stories will be of such dynamic importance into the story of who Jesus was, his reception, that it is the story, these stories of Jesus that will become a dividing line for those who stay with and walk alongside Jesus and those who would go on and foreshadow the forsaking that Judas himself did. It is these stories that become a sort of dividing line in the people who were there. And so as we uh, come to this text, I want us to look at, at perhaps three ways, three ways that, that uh, we can be numbed to the reality of what these texts are claiming by our persistent exposure to them, to the, the repeatedness of the story. Three ways that we've become numb to what these texts proclaim. The first is that there is a numbness because while we know that this, these miracles demonstrate Jesus' power, right, this um, amazing supernatural power, his power to provide for his people, we just don't quite believe it. I mean, we say we believe it, right? It's, it's the, the Sunday school answer is, of course, to say that Jesus has the power to provide, but there's a numbness here that pushes against that. 
there's a numbness here that when we encounter our daily life, right? If we were to come into a, the normal logistics question of how to feed a vast crowd of people, we might respond to Jesus in the same way Philip did, right? You get the, the, the lay of the land. There's this, this crowd of, of 5,000 men, so likely 10, 12, 15,000 people if you count the women and the, and the children and they've come to Jesus and they're in this remote area and, and the, the day is coming to a close. The day is coming to an end, right? And so Jesus looks to his disciples and after having performed countless miracles in their midst, he asks them, what do you think we ought to do? Where can we buy bread for these people? The, 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 the text tells us that Jesus said this to test them, to see what eyes they would view their daily normal life would. Would they see Jesus as one who could, had the power to provide, or would they see this merely as a physical problem to which there was no answer? And of course, Philip says, takes our words out of our mouth. He says, no way. It would take a, a, a nearly a year's worth of wages to even just have a little bit of food for all these people. He says it's ridiculous to assume that we have that kind of money, Jesus. We, we're broke. We can't do this. Following up on him, Andrew, Andrew, who's got this little little smidgen of faith, right? It, it's it, it, he's uh, if you watch if you've ever watched this uh, sitcom Superstore, I, I hear. Andrew coming like Sandra in this. He's like, well, I, I, I mean, there's this, these five loaves and two fish, but no, 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 that's a stupid idea. I'm a, I'm a terrible, foolish person. That's a stupid idea the second it came out of my mouth, right? There's an ounce of faith, but even to vocalize it sounds so completely foolish and stupid that he immediately retracts, right? He immediately pulls back. He immediately says, but what a stupid idea is that? Why is he embarrassed? Where does that embarrassment come from in Andrew? Where does the denial of, of the possibility that God, Jesus might do something supernatural, where does that come from in Philip? Right, the, 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 the Sunday school kid in you who's heard these stories over and over and over again would say, well, it's completely reasonable to think that Jesus could do the miracle, that Jesus was powerful enough to feed these people even with very little. But that you in every other scenario of your life, in every other scenario of your life, you would almost say with a, a tone of sarcasm, I guess God could bring healing. I guess God could give me a job. I guess God could, could do these real-life, physical, bodily, emotional things in my life. But do you really believe it? Like if you're praying, if you were in a group of people praying and you were praying for someone who was sick and someone was being a little too direct in what they were asking God to do in that person's body, you, Maybe you're like me and you start getting a little uncomfortable, right? You start getting a little uncomfortable because it seems like, yeah, it's probably not going to happen, right? 
We, we would take this verse, and, and the temptation for me this week as I picked this up was, was to immediately take this, this passage and, and, and go uh, into a, a, a non-material interpretation of it, a spiritualized version that says Jesus can provide for our every spiritual need. But you notice that I'm trying to use the spiritual way Jesus answers our spiritual needs, which is true. But I'm using it to discount the physical, right? I'm using it to discount the material. Let me uh, give you another illustration, right? Um, here we have coming up here on the calendar. I didn't mention this in the announcements, but November 10th, we're going to be doing our, our uh, joint, one of our joint worship services with, with Christ Quest, a sister church, a historically uh, black church in, in South Memphis. And, and one of the things that I have loved to do when we gather for worship is, is of course, the singing, right? And there's uh, one of the things that has dawned on me is that I'm really bad at gospel music, right? And it's not just because I don't have rhythm and I can't carry a tune, right? It's not just the fact that my body is so stiff, right? It doesn't know how to sway or clap, sing at the same time. It's like I got one of those three I'll try, right? I can only do one at a, one at a time. But the other thing I've realized is how uncomfortable I get with the lyrics of gospel music. Because there's something in gospel music that seems to preach that God just might show up in the world. That God might just change something in our world, in time, in place, in healing, in provision of life, of substance. That God might just make a way. And so I remember sitting there, uh, or standing there, of course, um, at, up front at, at Christ's quest, and, and, and um, we start singing, you know, You Made a Way by Travis Green, right? You made a way when our backs were against the wall, and it looked as if it was over. You made a way. We're standing here only because you made a way. You made a way. And it, it started feeling like, we were expecting Jesus to, to really do something, right? In time and place. Don't know how, but you did it. All right, and so what I noticed is I started hearing these lyrics and I started adding my own little, like, spiritualized refrains to the end, right? It says, because you move mountains and cause walls to fall. And like, what, like my sin, that you take, you remove the barrier of my sin so that I can see you as you are, right? You cause chains to break and giants fall. Yes, Lord, you, you take away those temptations and give me the strength to, to, to get past them. But, of course, the song is referring to times and places, real human situations that God showed up and did just that. You see, we come to this text, and Jesus performs this miraculous sign, but he tells us another little tidbit here. They say that it is during the feast of the Passover. 
You see, the feast of the Passover in, in, in Christendom has become a thing that is merely points to Jesus. But it, for the, the, the Hebrews in the first century, Passover was their declaration of independence from slavery, right? It was their Juneteenth celebration. It was, it was the time when they remembered that God took them their bodies, their souls, their minds, their emotions, their whole selves out of a place of bondage. And brought them into a place of, of healing, a place of life. It referred to a time and a season, right? A season that, that dominated the calendar, the highest point of the year. If you think culturally, maybe Christmas has this kind of rule over our emotions and our thoughts. The prism that we view our lives. Passover for the Hebrews meant a very real and very visceral reaction that the provision that God provided there in Egypt and the provision that God gave them in the desert of, of bread, actual bread, actual directions, that God actually showed up, was woven into the very fabric of their identity. And as we'll see when they respond to Jesus and what he does here, that's exactly where they pick up the story because they really believed that God had the power to provide. My temptation, and I'm guessing I'm maybe not the only one here in the room, is to, 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 to think that I have uh, taken a Jesus who could provide bread for the multitude, right? And I've turned him into a God that can only provide such spiritual things that there could be uh, no verification on if he showed up or didn't show up. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I believe this text, and actually I believe that this text, in, in as we look at Jesus' sermon he preaches afterwards, is actually pointing us to the unimaginable beauty of the spiritual reality that Jesus is doing. I believe that this text is showing us that God's spiritual provisions are so beautiful that his physical provisions pale in comparison. But don't let those things mess you up. Don't let those the, the spiritual reality let you gloss over that God's provision is for all of life. And some of his provisions we won't see until the new heavens and the new earth, but they ought to be sung about. They ought to be reflected on. They ought to be anticipated in our lives here. Because you notice the movement. Jesus takes a group of skeptics, those who have seen him work miracles but don't know who he is. And the first place he starts them, the place where he, he shows them and reveals himself to them is he starts with a physical bodily provision of a meal. And then he goes on to preach a sermon that will say, but I am the real bread of life. He starts with the physical bodily, and then he moves to how that displays the spiritual reality. But for you, if it's like me, if you have that tendency to, to gloss over or to discount the fact that God might actually show up in time and place. We have to ask ourselves the question, is it really possible to believe that Jesus is the bread of life if you don't really believe he can provide real bread? 
Can Jesus really be the bread of life, the source, the substance of, the, of, of life for the whole world if we don't think he can provide in our time of need? The text invites us to come walk with the Jesus who has real power, real power to provide for real needs here and now and in the world to come. Second layer of numbness, though, is not just that, that we say that we're hesitant to, to really believe that Christ has the power to provide, but we're really numb to the idea that Christ has the power to provide for what we need, what I need. Right? There's a world of difference between those two statements. Right, That Christ has the power to, to provide in general. And to declare that Christ has the power to provide what I need in particular. There's a world of difference between the two statements. And as I look at this crowd here, I wonder if maybe that's what's going on a little bit. After all, this crowd had gathered and they had... Uh, they gathered explicitly because the text tells us that they had been seeing the signs that Jesus was doing among the sick. They had been watching Jesus do supernatural physical healings in time and place. Surely they should have been set up and ready to, to, to see and to hear a miracle like Jesus producing a meal. But instead what we see is, is not just uh, Philip and, and Andrew's uh, doubts, but we see the crowd. When Jesus does it, they're, they're shocked. They're, they're, they're amazed. They, they crush and they, they crowd around him. This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. It tells us that Jesus can perceive in them that they are ready to come and force him to be king. So strong is their reaction to what Jesus had done. And the question is why? Hadn't they been seeing Jesus do these miracles all along? Why is it that they're he now, here and now so amazed and so convinced? And I wonder if it's not because before when Jesus was providing miraculous provisions, he was providing miraculous provisions for those sick people over there. I wonder if it's because before when they rehearsed the story of the Passover and God delivering his children out of Egypt, it's uh, God having the power to, to, to bring freedom to those ancestors that lived so long ago. There's a whole different reaction to the story when Jesus heals a sick person that's not me to when Jesus fills my tummy with warm bread. On the other, there's a difference between experiencing and proclaiming Christ to have power when it's abstract, when it's general, when it's to the beneficiaries who are elsewhere, but there's something else drastically different that happens in our minds and our hearts when we taste, when we see, when we experience God's provision in our lives. One of the things that I think the, the numbness, right, the numbness that we have towards these texts is that we read them. And if we perhaps do believe that Jesus has the power, we believe he's got the power for someone else, right? It's why in the same night you might sit and you might pray with, uh, with a woman who's, who's homeless, 
right? And you might pray for her that God would provide safety and care, right? And then you will go back to your 2,000 square foot house and shiver out of, uh, out of the anxiety attack, the panic attack that, that your finances are not quite where you wanted them to be. Right, we'll take our kids and our teens, our, our, our grade schoolers, our college students, and we will say, God has provided all the assurance that you need. God has provided all the affirmation that you could ever need. God has looked at you with delight. And we'll tell that to our kids, but then we'll go drive ourselves into debt buying the car that we think someone in our station of life ought to have. Do you see the difference? Do you see the, the, the notion that sometimes religious folks like you and me can think that Jesus' provisions are good enough for everyone else? But when it comes to my needs, when it comes to my need to feel valued, when it comes to my need to feel safe, when it comes to my need to have food for my family, when it comes to my need to experience freedom or purpose or companionship, when it comes to my needs, well, then maybe Jesus isn't quite up to the task. We'll say it to everyone else in every other station of life. We'll say, Jesus has the power to provide what you need, but do we really act like Jesus has the power to provide for our needs? Or do we go look for those things, the, the value, our safety, our food, our freedom, our purpose, our companionship? Do we go look for those somewhere else? And again, the question it demands of us is if you only expect to find Jesus' power, if you only expect to find Jesus' provision in other people, do you really believe? The text invites us to come walk with a Jesus, to come walk with a Jesus who doesn't just have power to provide in general, but he has the power to provide the thing your heart aches for the most. The third area of numbness the third layer of numbness is maybe we've tracked along, right? We've Okay, Jesus has the power to provide. And Jesus has the power to provide even the things, the very particular things that I need, the, the very hungers and thirsts that I'm experiencing in life. But for those of us who have tasted some of God's provision, there's a third area of numbness, a third way that we go off the rails, and that is to think that God's power exists in what he gave us, that God's power exists in his provision. But I think this text is warning us away from that, and it's declaring that the power of Christ's provision is in himself. The power, the, the thing that makes God's provisions effective in your life, the things that make God's gifts to you good is not the gift themselves, but the giver. Because the text is showing us that he, the giver, is the gift. We come to these people, right? And, and, and these people who have just fed on Jesus' spiritual dime. The people who have just had a meal where there was no meal before. The text tells us of their enthusiasm. 
their excitement, their desire that Jesus would be their king, that he would stick around, right? That he would be in position over them. Why? The text, when Jesus starts engaging with this crowd again on the other side of the sea, in verse 26, Jesus tells us what's going on in their hearts and lives. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, not because you saw who I was, not because you wanted me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want to come after me because you want to have a full tummy. You want to come to me because of the provision that I gave you. You want to come to Jesus Right, because he, he has the ability to provide a, a cosmic confessional when you're desperate to confess. You want to come to Jesus because uh, you want to have a story that tells you that your life has value, that it has meaning. You want to come to Jesus because you want to hear a story that says that there is hope, that everything bad will be made good, but you're willing to settle for just a, a, a feeling of those things rather than the substance of those things. We want the provisions that God gives, but God is an optional piece to the puzzle. It's kind of like a, uh, a, a, an older child, right, who, who still uh, keeps their baby blanket around. Right, And when a baby uh, is an infant, that familiar texture, right, the smells, the comfort of their particular teddy bear or their, or their blankie, right, it, it communicates to them in, in their pre-verbal state, right, a place of safety, a place of warmth, a place where they are secure, right? But as a child grows up, they need that blankie less and less, right? They don't need the blankie at all hours of the day. They just want it at night. Or they just want the blankie when they bonk their head on the table, right? They want their blankie to be a, a, a sort of provision, a sort of comfort, a sort of feeling that they can pick up when they need it and can discard it on the ground when they don't, right? Parents, you... Uh, if you are parents of children, you have likely sought in, in, in great haste to find such lovey or blanky, right? Because when it's not needed, it's discarded just anywhere, right? Inside, outside, under the bed, on top of the bed, right? At their friend's house or, or in any other place because they don't need it. So often when we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus and we want that warm, cozy feeling, right? We, we like the provision of the story, but, but when we don't need it, when we're not feeling that need, then we're ready to discard and leave it to the side, to leave it in the car seat, to leave it at home. But the power of Jesus is not a power that can be experienced impersonally. The power that Jesus displays in this text, if it is, is not given to us in a person, it is terribly frightening. It's fascinating that John goes into this next story here. 
And it's a story that if you read the other Gospels, is, is big and it's prominent. This story of Jesus walking on the water to this boat that's being tossed by the waves. And, and if you read Matthew, you'll, you'll read this story that some of you remember of, of Peter stepping out of the boat and being able to walk for a minute and, and Jesus being able to save him. It's this long and elaborate story. But here, John condenses the story for a single punch. He condenses the story to just one little point because he wants to show us that those who know Jesus the best, the disciples who were with him, are the anti-crowd. They're the opposite of the crowd. The crowd wanted to feel their tummies full again, and that's all they cared about. But the disciples experience something else. You see, as the disciples are on this boat and they see this figure walking towards them, on the water, and the, a figure that they can't identify, a figure who they don't know. They're terrified. The power to walk on water when it's a, an, a, a, an unidentifiable source is terrifying. A ghost, uh, the other gospel writers will tell us, is what they saw. A power that's abstracted from a person, if you really think about it, is utterly terrifying. When they see the raw power of a figure with no identity, it's, they're frightened in verse 19. But then something happens in verse 20, and that something is Jesus saying to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And when they hear those words, they know who the speaker is. The power by itself, when raw and, and, and abstracted from a person, could be terrifying or it could be exciting. But when the power comes in a person, when they saw that it was Jesus, notice the shift of emotion in verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. They were glad. Their fear, their distraughtness had a home, and the home was the person of Jesus. You see, the power of God's provision... It's not in the warm, fuzzy feeling that they get. It's that they come, the provision that they've received is Jesus himself. A Jesus who invites them to come and walk with him. A Jesus who invites them to come and experience the real power that can only be encountered when you're walking side by side, person to person. And so the text asks us, do we seek the provisions of God? Do we seek the nice words that it can tell us? Do we seek the nice feelings it can give us? Or do we seek the God who gives those feelings? There's a world of difference. And the outcome will be drastically different. We have a God who invites us to come walk with him in real life, in real space and time, in the real needs that you encounter in your everyday life and to walk with him as he is, not as an abstract source of power, but as a person in relationship who will say some things you like and he'll say some things you don't, who will encourage you in moments and he will challenge you in others. And that is precisely the provision that God 
has for us. So will we let Jesus leave the flannel graph? Will we let Jesus leave the fairy tale? Will we let Jesus leave the, the, the commercial or infomercial? And will we allow him to be who he is, the bread and the source of all of life? Come walk with Jesus. Father God, we thank you this morning, Lord, because the, the scriptures tell us that you have provided all that is needed for life and godliness, that you have provided our very life. And so, Father God, I pray that as we, I can see in so many ways, places and times that we have tried to pull back on the reins, that we have tried to take possession of that which you have freely given us, the times when we think that we can provide for ourselves better than what you have given to us, Lord, I pray that we would feel the rebuke, but that we would also feel your welcoming smile as you invite us into life with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.